Have you ever been around someone that just complained all the time? Don't raise your hand. Or point. That's rude. And have you ever been the person that complained a lot? I think we are all prone to complaining. To complain is to feel sort of a a discontent. There's something that isn't the way you think it should be, maybe something that isn't the way it really should be. And sometimes that's true. There, There is a complaining that actually is in Scripture that is not wrong. People complain to the Lord about injustice in the world. There's a whole genre of Scripture called lament. People pouring out to the Lord, saying, Lord, this is wrong. Arise, work. Bring forth your mercy and grace and your sovereign plan. But there's another sort of complaining in which we are doubting or questioning the goodness of something. We're doubting or questioning the goodness of something. We're looking at something and saying, I know better. I think this should happen differently. So how do we know the difference? How do we know when it's wrong to complain? Let me give you two examples, well, maybe one with two outcomes, and see if you can spot the difference. Imagine, it's purely hypothetical, imagine my wife prepares a meal for the family. We eat the meal at the end of it. I say, I didn't really like this. I I, I just, it wasn't really that good. Uh wasn't very tasty, was a little bit burnt. I I, I didn't really like it. Now, that's complaining, right? It's insensitive, it's rude, but let's try another one. Let's say after the meal, I look at my wife and I say, you know what? That was terrible. You're a really bad cook. It's hypothetical. (laughs) I value my life. I would not say this. And my wife's actually a really good cook. Hypothetical. But what if I looked at her and I said, you know what? That was terrible. You're a bad cook. You never give us good food. I ate better before I ever met you. Wait for it. Maybe you know what's coming next. My mom's a better cook than you. Oh. Hypothetical. It's actually not true. Sorry, mom. What's the difference between those two complaints? One is insensitive and rude, right? But what am I complaining about in the first one? The food. What am I... So I'm questioning the goodness of the food. What am I complaining about or questioning the goodness of in in the second one? My wife. That's a big difference. A big difference. And as we walk through the book of Numbers... You're going to see many times that the Israelites grumble and complain. And it invites that question, what are they complaining about? Who are they grumbling against or what are they grumbling about? And I've called the series, Are We There Yet? Because it's, it's a book about a journey from this time on Mount Sinai after God's rescued his people out of Egypt and he brings them to Mount Sinai, establishes the relationship, gives them the law, and then we've covered the first 10 chapters of Numbers. Everything seems to be going great. They're all on board. They all want to be obedient. They set off so well and immediately the grumbling and complaining starts. And they're not just grumbling about their circumstances They are complaining about God. 
They are questioning and doubting the goodness of God. If you don't have your Bibles open, open up to Numbers chapter 11. At the end of Romans, or I'm sorry, Numbers chapter 10, we saw the people get up and move. And Numbers has all these details and we get kind of overwhelmed, but it goes camp by camp, leader by leader. This person got up and they moved with their family. Then this person followed and it lists all of the tribes of Israel. And we go, why? Because they were doing exactly what God had told them to do, exactly the way that God had told them to do it. And and the, the subtext behind Numbers chapter 10 is, this is great. Everything's going to be great. They're obeying the Lord. The Lord is being good. What could possibly go wrong? And then if you look at chapter 11, verse 1, we read, Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So that place was called Tibera, because fire from the Lord had burned among them. Do you hear the tone switch like that? It is a jarring transition between chapter 10 and chapter 11, and I believe that is on purpose. It is to get our attention that so often when we think, I've got this, everything's going great, God's good, I'm going to follow him, what could possibly go wrong? That's when often we are at our most vulnerable and we so quickly forget the goodness of the Lord. And these first three verses of chapter 11 form a pattern for the rest of the book of Numbers. The people complain, God hears and he is angry and he responds. And as we'll see, he responds in both judgment and grace. People cry out to Moses. Moses prays for, intercedes. He he steps between God and the people and says, God, rescue them. He prays for them for deliverance. And God delivers his people. And then another interesting tidbit that happens over and over again is they name that place something. They name that place something to remind them of the awful situation that they got themselves into. Of course, then they move on from there and forget that it ever happened. And it all happens again and again and again. And I think, I think if we're really honest with ourselves, maybe I'll just put this on me. I can identify with that. You think you got it. Everything's fine. And it just seems like you get in this cycle. There are three main complaints or grumblings I want to go through in chapters 10 and 11. We're going to look at what the complaints are, kind of what's at their heart. Then we're going to go back and look at how God deals with each one. And then we'll look at how all of our complaints show us our desperate need for Jesus Christ. So we're going to start by looking at these complaints. And the first one is the people complaining. I want to go into verse 4 because, again, I think 11, 1 through 3 is really an overview, kind of lumping together a bunch of complaints that happen over the next couple chapters, uh, but kind of focusing then in verse 4 on what's going on here. It says in verses 1, uh, sorry, in verses 4 through 9, the rabble with them began to crave other food, and again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. 
The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it in a hard mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it into loaves, and it tasted like something made with olive oil. When the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. What's going on here? It says the rabble among them. Now, that's interesting. This is actually the only place in all of Scripture this word occurs. And so it's a little difficult for us to know exactly what the word means, this rabble. Some scholars believe that he's talking about uh, people that were non-Israelites. We know that there were some from Egypt, maybe some foreigners living in Egypt or Egyptians that left with the Israelites. And, and a lot of people think that's what it is. And that's possible, but I think the focus of, of the identity, what made them who they were, is not so much their ethnicity, but what they're doing. That's where the text is focusing on. These are people who are dissatisfied and are expressing that dissatisfaction. And that dissatisfaction is overflowing to other people. It's spreading like a disease. And what are they dissatisfied about? Well, they're questioning God's goodness, specifically God's goodness in the food that God is providing. Now, we have to go back a little bit. If we look back into the book of Exodus, what we see is that God had been graciously and miraculously providing this manna, this food for them to eat every single day for about a year now. God has been providing for them. We also have records of God bringing quail from time to time to provide for them. So these are not starving people saying, God, we're starving. We just can't take it anymore. These are people who are fed. They have what they need and they say, I want something different. And then they say, we had it better back in Egypt. Now think for a moment. Who were these people back in Egypt? Slaves. If you remember, before they leave Egypt, they are, they are building bricks, and then they are forced to make bricks without straw. They have to go and gather their own straw, still make the same quota, but take extra time out of their day. It's an impossible task. We are told in Egypt they are in an impossible situation and they hated it and they are crying out to the Lord in Egypt and here they are a year later or so saying, I want to go back. We had it better back there. Now, they might not be wrong in terms of the food. They probably could grow some of these foods themselves. They probably had them in their backyards, in their gardens. They could go fishing. They're not wrong that they had some of these foods. What they are wrong in is that that situation was better and that it would be better to be back there. And by complaining in this way, they are completely saying to the Lord Most High, you are wrong. You should not have brought us out of Egypt. On top of that, they are complaining about what God has given them. This manna, I love this word, if you know the the Hebrew word manna here, literally just means what is it? That's all it means. They look at the ground, God's providing, it shows up like the dew fades and it leaves behind this, he calls it a resin, I don't know what coriander seeds are, uh, but it's like a layer of of powdery or sticky or hard substance and they look at it and go, "I, I don't know what it is, what do you think it is? I don't know, what should we call it? Well, let's call it what is it? Because we don't know. And they scrape this up and they eat it. And it 
is not the most luxurious thing in the world, granted. They've been eating it for a year. I get it. I'd be a little ready for a cheeseburger too. But God is providing for them. And to go from, I wish we had other food, to God, you were wrong for saving us out of Egypt. That's a big jump. They are not just questioning or doubting the food. They are questioning and doubting God's goodness and his wisdom and how he's working out his plan in their life. I think before we move on to the other complaints, I want to look at each one and understand what we can learn from it. See, sin makes us dissatisfied with the good things that God has already given us. By turning our hearts and saying, I want more or I want something different, we are logically turning against and looking at what God has given us and saying, that's not good enough. We are doubting God's goodness. They had what they needed in this situation, but they wanted something different. They wanted what they wanted and were questioning the good things and forgetting the good things that God had given them. Now let's look at the second complaint that goes on. Look down in verses 10 through 15. Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance to their tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you are going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me. If I have found favor in your eyes and do not let me face my own ruin. What's going on here? Moses is the leader of the Israelites. God has appointed him to this position. He's the one that went into Egypt and talked to the leaders, talked to Pharaoh and led the people out of Egypt. Moses is their leader. And so here, as the people are grumbling and complaining about their food, Moses is getting upset. But what is it he's upset about? I think this is very telling about Moses' heart. Look at the pattern here. Verse 10, Moses hears the people of every family wailing at the entrance of their tents. Now that, as a leader, would be hard. I'm leading these people, and they're all upset. They're all complaining. That would be a very difficult situation. And I could understand Moses being angry or upset at that. But I don't actually think that's the heart of the issue. Because it says, the people were wailing at the entrance to their tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry. And then Moses was troubled. I don't think Moses' trouble so much is that the people are upset. Moses is upset because God's upset. And Moses is standing in the way. And Moses is thinking, God, this is not fair. And you might be thinking, Pastor, I don't know where you're getting that from. You look at the next verse. He asked the Lord, why have you, why have you brought this trouble on who? Your people? God, why have you done this to your people? This is really hard. That's not what Moses says. Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? Singular. 
Moses is looking at all these people complaining and God's anger. And Moses is saying, God, why are you doing this to me? Moses is making this all about himself. One of the things I love about scripture is that other than Jesus Christ, we really don't have superheroes in scripture. We have people like you and me. And scripture is full of their flaws. And and if you've ever studied any other texts or stories or fables from the ancient Near East, from similar time frames, other cultures had what seemed to be very similar stories. And so sometimes people say, see, there's a lot of overlap. But here's the thing. When you read those stories, those people can do no wrong. Everything they they do is amazing. Why? Where did the stories come from? Sometimes it was from them. We have accounts of battles where kings wrote down and one king on one side of the battle said, we won, it was an absolute victory. And you read from the other culture, we won, it was an absolute victory. They always look good. This is one of the reasons I believe scripture proves that it is the word of God. Because we have the record of these people's failings. And this is a big one for Moses. We're going to see another one later on in the book. That's a really big one for Moses. But here we have Moses looking at this situation of other people complaining. And his complaint is, God, how could you do this to me? Remember how the people said things were better in Egypt. They complained by, complained by saying we'd rather go back. But look at what the... what. Moses says what he wants to go back to. Verse 15, if this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me. If I have found favor in your eyes. God, if you love me at all, you will take my life. That's what Moses is saying. It would be better if I was never born. I want to be careful here. It's easy as an outsider reading scripture going, Moses, what an idiot. How could you be so stupid here? How could you do this? Like, come on, I would never do that in Moses' place. How can Moses, yeah, let's just not be like Moses. That's an easy way to read the scripture. And then you get in one of those moments in your life and those doubts and those questions kick in. And in those moments, I praise God that we have examples like Moses, that we say, I'm not alone in my error, still sin, still wrong, but I'm not alone, and God wasn't done with Moses. And there's grace and mercy for Moses' grumbling. But one of the things we can learn from Moses here is that when we complain and grumble so often, it's because our focus is in the wrong place. We turn the focus back on ourselves and we say, God, it's all about me. How could you do this to me? And in those moments, we need to ask ourselves, am I making this about me? Am am I being trapped in my own sin and my own grumbling and complaining and I'm making it all about me? We need to, in those moments, focus on God's goodness and especially on God's 
past faithfulness. And I love that we're reading through the Psalms as a church because so many of the Psalms repeat the past faithfulness of God to remind God's people of how good he has been. So here we have the people, they're complaining about food. We have Moses, he's complaining about the hardship he's facing as a leader. Let's look at the third complaint. In chapter 12, rather, we have the complaint of Miriam and Aaron. Just to remind you of who these people are, in case you've forgotten, maybe you uh, have heard kind of the old Sunday school stories, but of Moses, when he was a baby, baby, he was put in a basket and put into a river to save him from the evil Pharaoh and save his life. Who put him in that basket in the river? Miriam, his sister. Who followed that basket along the river until it got to Pharaoh's daughter and she pulls Moses out? And who volunteers to raise that baby or at least to find another Jewish woman, unnamed person, Miriam? Miriam steps up and says, hey, I know somebody that might raise Moses. And she brings him home to mom and mom raises her baby. Miriam, what a hero. Maybe you know Aaron. Remember the burning bush? God calls to Moses and says, hey, go back to Egypt. Tell my people I'm bringing you out. Let my people go. You remember that story? And do you remember what Moses says? I can't do it, God. I'm not a good speaker. I can't do it. Over and over again, God finally says, fine, I will give you someone to speak on your behalf. And who does he meet? Coming out toward him? Aaron, his brother. So we have Miriam, Moses' sister, and Aaron, Moses' brother, both who are very important people in Israel, through whom God has worked in amazing ways. Aaron is now the high priest. All the high priests from Israel come from Aaron's family. And in Exodus chapter 15, verse 20, we're told that Miriam is a prophet. God speaks through Miriam. These are two important people. But look at what they complain about in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Understand what's going on here. First, they are complaining about Moses' wife. Some have taken this to mean that it might have been a second wife, which was not unknown in this time frame. I don't think that's the case. I think this is the same wife. The word Cushite and uh, in other places she's called a Midianite, they kind of roughly mean the same area. I do believe this is his first wife. And he's been married to her for quite a while now. And God's okay with it. She came in and became what we would call today Jewish. She has come under the Old Testament covenant. She has followed the Lord Most High. She is converted, if you will. And God's okay with that. We see examples of that all through Scripture. Why are Miriam and Aaron complaining about Moses' wife? And here's why. It's a smokescreen for what's really in their hearts. That's what's going on here. The wife is not the real issue. And this is a good pattern that often the thing that we are complaining about is a smokescreen for the deeper issue of our heart. And we get to the deeper of the issue of their heart in verse 2. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? 
Moses would go into the tabernacle and meet with God and God would tell him and tell him to write things down for his people. We have the record of what Moses wrote down in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. This is what God gave to Moses over a long period of time, meeting with him in the tabernacle. And then often Moses would come out and declare to the people, this is what God said. And here in this setting, Miriam and Aaron are going around to the people. Understand how they're complaining. They're not just going to Moses and saying, Moses, we don't like this. They're not going to the Lord and saying, God, we don't like this. They're going to other people and saying, can you believe that Moses? Man, our brother, he's gone crazy with power. He thinks he's the only one that can talk to God. He thinks the only he's the only one that can speak on God's behalf. And they are grumbling among the people and causing other people to complain. They're causing divisions among the people of God. God chose Moses to be their leader. That is abundant through Exodus and through Numbers. God chose Moses. Moses didn't even want this. God chose him. And Mo, or Miriam, rather, and Aaron are not satisfied with this. What can we learn from the complaint of Miriam and Aaron? Again, we see here the selfishness of sin. Instead of focusing on God, his wisdom, and his goodness, and God's past faithfulness, Miriam and Aaron are focusing on what they want that they don't have. They want Moses' authority and position. And look at the danger here of this selfish complaining. It spreads. It's one of the dangers of grumbling and complaining. It spreads. It overflows. And here, Miriam and Aaron are taking their focus off of God and putting it on themselves, and they're causing other people to do the same thing. Three complaints here. All doubting and questioning the goodness of God. All saying they know better and God's done it wrong. Friends, so often we need a healthy dose of humility and a reminder that God is God and we are not. And I find the last couple chapters of the book of Job so helpful in this. Job chapter 38 verses 1 through 5 says, Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. If you know the book of Job, Job questions God's goodness over and over again. Job's friends trying to be helpful say, Oh no, no, Job, God is good, but you're messed up. That's their encouragement to Job. It's a summary. Job keeps saying, I haven't done anything wrong. God must be wrong. And then we get to the end of the book of Job and the Lord shows up. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched out a measuring line across it? This goes on for four long chapters. Job wants God to explain himself, and God comes and says, Job, you don't know what you're talking about. I know things you can't even fathom. You don't understand. Job's perspective is completely out of whack. And then at the end, Job gets it. Job 42, verses 1 through 3, Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. 
No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. Instead, we need to turn our eyes away from the thing that we're judging and saying we know better to the Lord's goodness. Psalm 9 verses 1 and 2 says, I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing the praises of your name, O Most High. Dissatisfaction, grumbling, and complaining are easy. Satisfaction, joy, and peace in the Lord is hard work. It is a battle to turn our focus there. Here the Israelites have just started their journey. God has been so gracious and so faithful. And right away they clear all of that away. And they say, God, you're not good enough. You're not doing what we want right now. How quickly they and we forget and doubt the goodness of God. But Let's look at how God responds to these things. He responds in grace and, yes, also correction. And that correction is difficult. The first one that we're actually focused on is Moses. Even though it's the people complaining, Moses has complained about his leadership. He's complaining that God made him the leader, and now things aren't going well, and Moses wants to check out and say, I'm done. So what does God do? Well, first he addresses two key issues with Moses. One is that God in his grace brings others along to help Moses. I won't look at it, but there are 70 people in the nation of Israel now that are appointed elders or leaders to help Moses out. In chapter 11, 17, it says they will share the burden of the people with you so that you will not have to carry it alone. That's grace. Moses is wrong in his complaint, but God shows grace to him by saying, okay, Moses, I'm not taking you out of the situation, but I will give you people to help. Scripture records that God pours out his spirit, his guiding and gifting presence on these people, and they prophesy. And there's no record of them doing this again. But here they are giving a visible demonstration so that the whole nation can say, yep, those are the people God has chosen. This principle of shared leadership, others coming alongside leaders to help them out, is so crucial throughout Scripture. We are not meant to follow the Lord on their own, or on our own, rather. It's why, as a church, we have elders. We have shared leadership among a group of leaders to uphold the burdens of one another. And I was struggling with where to put this, but I'm putting it here. Some compare the senior pastor's role with that of Moses called kind of a Moses style of leadership. And there's this idea that like as the senior pastor now, I now speak on behalf of God and I have the authority of Moses. And then like the corollary of that is then the elders are just there to help me. But Moses was still responsible or authoritative over these people. Now here's the thing. That's a wrong application. I just want to be very clear. That is not how we do leadership here. It's not how I see my role. I am equal in authority with the elders. I am in no way uh, in authority over the elders. There is one whose authority gets pointed to by Moses. There is one who fulfills in a better way the authority and leadership of Moses. And it's not a senior pastor. It's Jesus Christ. And we'll look at that in a moment. But I just want to make it clear, this level of leadership does not point to me today as a senior pastor or anyone else. It points to Christ. 
But here, as Moses is hurting and he complains to the Lord, God not only corrects Moses, but he also meets the people's needs. He gives them food. But he does correct Moses. In chapter 11, 23, God says, Is the Lord's arm too short? Saying, Moses, man, you think I can't do this? You think I can't care for these people and feed them? Watch what I can do, Moses. He says, now you will see whether or not what I say will come true for you. And so he helps Moses. He steps in, he corrects Moses, but he's also going to show grace and mercy and help him. Look at the people. Remember their complaint? They didn't like the food that God had given them. Wasn't enough. Wasn't enough of a difference. It was always the same thing. And look at God's response. Look at verses 18 through 20 of chapter 11. He says, tell the people, he's telling Moses this, so Moses is going to tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two days or five or 10 or 20, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? Skip down to verse 31. Now a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It scattered them up to two cubits deep all around the camp as far as a day's walk in any direction. All that day and night and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than 10 homers. Then they spread them out all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people and he struck them with a severe plague. Therefore, the place was named Kibroth Hatava because there they buried the people who had craved other food. They want God to give them food. And so God gives them food. But that food itself becomes a judgment upon them. It's hard because of the cultural differences and the measurements here, but there were quail piled up. I don't think this was like the whole area, but at least piled, I imagine like drifts. We have snow drifts. They had quail drifts. There was, there were like piles of quail up to, quail up to three feet, a day's walk in any direction. And it says that they gathered them up and no person gathered less than 10 homers. Now, I did a little bit of research. That's about 60 bushels. If you've gone apple picking, right? A bushel basket is about yay big. About yay deep. I don't know how many quail fit in there, but it's a decent bit, right? 60. 60 of these basketfuls each person could pick up. This is an immense and impossible and amazing amount of quail. They doubted that God could do it, and God's like, I'll show you. Rolls up his sleeves and gets to work. But... Then a severe plague breaks out. It doesn't really tell us if the plague was from the food itself, but what is certain is the connection because it says while the meat was still between their teeth. There was a link between the punishment and them getting what they wanted. Romans chapter 1 describes a pattern of sin. People reject God. We substitute our own ideas, our own standards. We walk away from the Lord. And then what does God do? There's this this phrase in Romans 1 that gets repeated a couple times. It says, God gave them over. 
And it's a pattern in scripture that sometimes God's judgment on our sin is by allowing us to get exactly what we want. Because we think that getting what we want will be great. God, if you'll just do what I want, everything would be great. And God's like, let's see how that works out. And often it doesn't work out at all. God uses this situation to remind them that he is their provider and they must trust him. He is God and they are not. And the final complaint, Miriam and Aaron. If you remember the complaint, it was that they were saying, as God only spoken through Moses, does he not also speak through us? Miriam and Aaron are saying this. And then we get to verse 3, which is a funny verse. Now, Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. What a nice thing to say about Moses, right? Who wrote that verse? Moses. Um, I do not think that word means what you think it means, Moses. But here's the thing. I was thinking about this, and I thought, how did Moses get the words to write for the first five books of the Bible? From God. He went into the tabernacle and the Lord spoke to him. He's going to say later face to face. And, and he gets the word. So I, I almost imagine Moses like, uh-huh, I'm going to write this down. I remember this. It was terrible. And he's writing it down. And then God's like, now write this down. Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of this earth. And I imagine Moses going, I can't write that. And God's going, no, 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 Moses, this is important. You write that down. I think this is part of God's grace to Moses. Moses, you were right in this situation. He was wrong in the other situation, but he's right here. Moses is a humble man. The other thing that's interesting is this word for humility. It's not the normal word for humility. It's not just meekness or or like putting others before yourself. It actually specifically has to do with his relationship with God. It means someone who is completely dependent on God. He's humble in his relationship with the Lord. That's what it's talking about here. And it's interesting what happens is that Moses, or I'm rather, rather Miriam and Aaron are stirring up trouble and who hears it and does something about it? It's not Moses. It's God. It's kind of like that phrase. My mom used to say this. Just wait till your dad gets home. (laughs) Oh man, dad showed up here and the Lord heard this. It's almost like Moses was going to let it go. He had to have heard this, but God steps in and says, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not letting this go, Moses. God defends Moses. And he tells Moses to bring Miriam and Aaron before the tent of meeting. This is the tabernacle. And then in verse 5, it says, Then the Lord came down. The visible presence of the Lord descended in that space. And Miriam and Moses and Aaron are all three right there. Remember what Miriam and Aaron wanted? They wanted to stand in the presence of God and had God speak to them. And guess what's going to happen? That's exactly what's going to happen. God shows up and he speaks to them. And he says, listen to my words. Remember they said, doesn't God speak to us too? He's like, okay. Listen to my words. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then are you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Then the anger of the Lord burned against them and he left. 
When the cloud lifted from above the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous. It became white as snow. Aaron turned toward him, her and saw that she had a defiling skin disease. And he said to Moses, please, my Lord, I ask you not to hold this Hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. Do not let her be like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away. So Moses cried out to the Lord, please, God, heal her. This is hard. Miriam and Aaron complain about Moses. Miriam and Aaron go around to the entire nation and they're spreading rumors and lies. God shows up and who gets the judgment? Miriam. Now that's what it looks like. But remember, this is Aaron's sister. It's also Moses' sister. And right away you see him crying out. He hurts because his sister has been covered in leprosy. So it's not like he's getting off scot-free, but there's a couple more details too. In this culture, it is typical that you would always list the man's name first. If there was a group, you always listed the man's name first, unless there was a reason not to. And what is very clear here is that the ringleader of this instance, the one that had the idea that initially was questioning Moses, was Miriam. I'm not saying Aaron wasn't to blame. He was. But Miriam appears to have started it. That's why, in each case, Miriam is listed first. The other thing that's interesting is that Aaron had the right to be in the tabernacle. He worked there. He served there. God had called him to serve there. Miriam did not have the right to be there. She was not supposed to be there. But this is what she wanted, and she is experiencing the consequences of what she wanted. And God defends Moses. His anger burns against Miriam and Aaron. Miriam is covered with leprosy, the skin disease. And the disease is bad enough, but what was really terrible is it meant she would have to go outside the camp. Israel would have to leave her behind. She would no longer be able to travel with them, except that from a distance. And being a person, any person out in the wilderness outside the camp was a death sentence. And this is what Aaron is thinking. She's doomed. She's not going to survive this. And look at his response in verse 11. He calls Moses Lord. This is not Lord God Most High. It's recognizing Moses' authority. And he asks Moses to talk to God on behalf of Miriam and help her. Remember their complaint? We should be able to talk to God the same way Moses does. And here they realize that's not right. And Moses does exactly that. He intercedes for Miriam. And I believe the implication of the text is that Miriam is immediately healed. Now, the rest of the text is God says she still has to go outside the camp for seven days. But that's what the law required after they had been diagnosed. And where's the grace here? It says in verse 15, Moses or Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days and the people did not move on till she was brought back. The people of Israel are unwilling to leave Miriam behind. And so they wait and then she is restored. But there's another aspect of grace. When do the Israelites move? When do they break camp and go? Who tells them to do that? It's not the Israelites. It's God. So we also know that God waited seven days. 
so that Miriam could be restored. We need to understand the seriousness of sin and that God does judge and discipline sin. We need to see our need to have someone intercede for us, but we also need to see God's grace, forgiveness, and restoration. Finally, very quickly, all of this points ahead to our need for a Savior. When we are dissatisfied, we need to remind ourselves, I need Jesus. All of these themes are picked up in the New Testament. Jesus miraculously is gathered around by a a group kind of in the wilderness of of Israel. And the question comes up, where are we going to get enough food? And Jesus feeds them. Later on, the people want more food and they ask for a sign. God gave our forefathers manna. What are you going to do? And what does Jesus say? I am the bread of life. He takes the dissatisfaction of the Israelites and points it to himself. In the Old Testament, God gave many servants to his people. Moses is one of the great ones. We saw that here in chapter 12 where he says, Moses is faithful in all my house as a servant. Hebrews picks up on this. And it says, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. To direct quote, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself, for every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. And if you skip down, it says, but Christ is faithful as the son of over God's house. Jesus is not just some other leader. He is the Son of God. John chapter 1, 14. We know that Moses saw God's form, veiled as it were, listened to the voice of God, heard the words of God, but we are told that Jesus is the Word of God who became flesh. Our dissatisfaction leads us to forget the goodness of God. And to question the goodness of God over and over again. Augustine wrote, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. Jesus is our only satisfaction. Sin keeps us trapped into thinking if you would get your way, then you'd be satisfied. And then we get there and things are no better. And the cycle goes on and on and on. If you're struggling with complaining, or grumbling, I challenge us. We need to search our hearts. Are we trusting in the goodness of God? God sent his son to people who grumbled against him. Jesus came and lived among people who rejected him. He died for people who complained against him. He rose from the dead and promises eternal life even to us who will keep on complaining. We need to seek our satisfaction in Jesus alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for our complaints and our grumblings. Teach us to find our satisfaction in you. Help us to see that Jesus is the ultimate answer to all of our needs. Help us to not fall into the trap of our own sin and the deceitfulness of our own ideas that make us think that we know better than you. Thank you for your son, Jesus, and the salvation he offers freely to all who believe in him. In your name we pray. Amen.